Our call to worship this morning comes from Isaiah chapter 44. The Lord says, Listen now, Israel, my servants, my chosen people, the descendants of Jacob. I am the Lord who created you. From the time you were born, I have helped you. Do not be afraid. You are my servant, my chosen people whom I love. Our opening hymn of worship this morning is number 131 in the red hymn books and it will also appear on the screen. The God of Abram praise who reigns enthroned above. So we come to God in our prayers of approach, and as usual, after I've led us in a reasonably short prayer, we will join together in the words of the Lord's Prayer, which we are invited to pray in our own first language and preferred version. So let's come to God in prayer. Let's pray together. We come to you, the God of Abraham and Sarah to offer our worship and praise, to admit our faults and failings, to seek forgiveness, and to find new strength to continue our own lives. Living in a wealthy Western democracy, no matter how flawed, we know that we enjoy a standard of life that will be an impossible dream for the majority of people on this planet. We take for granted rights and privileges 
that countless others will never experience. Safety, security and even sufficiency are so natural for most of us that we don't even notice them. So as we offer our thanks and praise, it is tempered by recognition of that privilege. Sometimes it's easy to hide behind a veneer of respectability, blaming some unidentified them for all that is wrong in the world. Sometimes our silence renders us complicit in the very things we claim to oppose. And sometimes our actions contradict our best intentions and our chosen values. We are sorry for the sins of complacency and apathy, of inconsistency and even of laziness. And ask not simply that we be forgiven, but that we also be inspired to live out better the truths we claim. God of the ancients, who trusted you and walked with you, who messed up time and time again, who discovered more and more of your true identity and whose stories continue to inspire and encourage us today. Be with us in this time of worship, refreshing and renewing us for our own continuing journeys of faith. Hear us now as we gather our prayers together in the words of Jesus, who taught us when we pray to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom, power and Today we'd start off with a little kind of a quiz game, whatever you want to call it. I'm going to put some sayings up on the screen, um, but there'll be a word missing, 
And these are all what are called similes, which are expressions that give us kinds of describing words. You can describe something as being like something else. Um, way back in the Dark Ages, when I was in the equivalent of about P3, so quite little, uh, we had to learn great long lists of standard similes. Hopefully things have moved on a little bit since then. But there's no wrong answers, so that's the great thing about similes. It can be whatever you think is the right answer. But let's just have a go and see if we can guess what some of the standard ones were and maybe come up with some better ones. Okay, so as cold as ice. Okay, anybody want to offer anything else apart from as cold as ice? As cold as ice. That's one of the ones that I, I definitely remember. And I don't think it's too easy to improve on that one. Okay. As strong as. Strong as Samson. As strong as an ox. Any more suggestions? I think you all went to the same school as me, didn't you? As strong as an ox. So there we've got a picture of two oxen with a yoke on. And we say as strong as an ox because in a lot of countries and probably historically in our own countries, um, ox or oxen, plural of ox, uh, was used to pull carts. Okay, what's next? As cool as... <laughs> okay, a cute... Oh, see, the grown-ups need to know all these, so I think this must have been standard issue P3 English, wherever you were in, in the United Kingdom. Anybody think of any better ones than as cool as a cucumber? No? Okay. It is, in fact, as cool as a cucumber. Why do you think we say that one? That's a, it's kind of a strange thing to say, isn't it? Why do we say as cool as a cucumber? Shouldn't it be as, as cool as Elvis or something like that? Okay. As flat as? Pancake. See, this, this side are all having great fun today. So it's interesting, isn't it? You sort of do something, you think, well, try and get the younger people growing up. And all the growing up, oh, that's it. Yep, as flat as a pancake. Who makes nice flat pancakes? Betty makes lovely flat pancakes. <laughs> Who makes... Oh, and I've got... Jen makes lovely flat pancakes. Who makes horrible lumpy, flat, lumpy pancakes? Yeah, a few of us. As flat as a pancake. Okay. As brave as... A lion. A lion. So why do we think lions are brave? I think that's because of the stories we get told about lions as king of the jungle, which is a bit daft because they don't actually live in jungles, but there we go. As brave as a lion. They do look quite regal, don't they? And quite proud and quite in charge. As tall as. What do you think, boys? Any boys want to have a guess what we as tall as? Or girls? Tall as a tree, I think I heard from the Aiden, sorry. A giraffe? Yep, let's have a look. It is as tall as a giraffe. Well done, Eden. I think it ought to be something like as tall as a skyscraper nowadays, because that's even taller than a giraffe. But yep, tall as a giraffe with its great big, long, 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 long neck. As good as... <laughs> I was very quick. <laughs> and there was a certain irony in that. I was like, as good as gold. <laughs> yep, as good as gold. I wonder why we say as good as gold. I think it's because gold's supposed to be the best, isn't it? The finest metal and uh, what you ought to aspire to have. So lots of sayings of things being like something else. And uh, in the Bible we get names used to describe God and used to describe Jesus. Can anybody think of any of the names that are used to describe God or Jesus in the Bible? Uh-huh. See, that's much harder. Even the grown-ups have gone quiet now. Lamb, thank you, Wendy. Yep, Jesus is the Lamb of God. That's great. Father. Father, yep, God is Father. So God is like the perfect parent for all of us. Wonderful. Other ones? Love, yep, God is love. Yep. Morning starts, a good one I had done for a long time, Leanne. Thank you for that. That's great. I'll have to go away and think about that one now. That's, yep, be absolutely right. God is morning star, Christ is the morning star. Something over here that I heard and talked across as I do. Jehovah, yeah, okay, Jehovah, which means, or is a translation of I am, which is very neat. Thank you, whoever said Jehovah, because that gives us the link into the song, which is great. Uh, This is a song that some of the names that Jesus is recorded in John's Gospel as using to describe himself. And some of them are perhaps a bit surprising. 
Uh, and the grown-ups are going to be thinking a little bit about this later on. So the song is, Jesus the Lord said, I am the bread, the bread of life for mankind am I. Thanks, Paul. We read first from Exodus chapter 3, God calls Moses. Then the Lord said, I have seen how cruelly my people are being treated in Egypt. I have heard them cry out to be rescued from their slave drivers. I know all about their sufferings. And so I have come down to rescue them from the Egyptians and to bring them out of Egypt to a spacious land, one which is rich and fertile, 
and in which the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites now live. I have indeed heard the cry of my people, and I see how the Egyptians are oppressing them. <clears throat> now I am sending you to the king of Egypt so that you can lead my people out of this country. But Moses said to God, I am nobody. How can I go to the king and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? God answered, I will be with you, and when you bring the people out of Egypt, you will worship me on this mountain. That will be the proof that I have sent you. But Moses replied, When I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your ancestors sent me to you, they will ask me, What is his name? So what can I tell them? God said, I am who I am. This is what you must say to them. The one who is called I am has sent me to you. And John chapter 8 verse 12 This was the end of the story of the woman caught in adultery. Jesus spoke to the Pharisees again. I am the light of the world, he said. Whoever follows me will have the light of life and will never walk in darkness. The Pharisees said to him, Now you are testifying on your own behalf. What you say proves nothing. No, answered Jesus, even though I do testify on my own behalf, what I say is true because I know where I came from and where I'm going. You do not know where I came from or where I am going. <clears throat> you make judgments in a purely human way. I pass judgment on no one. But if I were to do so, my judgment would be true, because I am not alone in this. The Father who sent me is with me. It is written in your law that when two witnesses agree, what they say is true. I testify on my own behalf and the Father who sent me also testifies on my behalf. Where is your Father? they asked him. You know neither me nor my Father, Jesus answered. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. Jesus said this as he taught in the temple in the room where the offering boxes were placed. And no one arrested him because his hour had not come. Finally, John 14. Do not be worried and upset, Jesus told them. Believe in God and believe also in me. There are many rooms in my father's house, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. I would not tell you this if it were not so. And after I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to myself, so that you will be where I am. You know the way that leads to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, so how can we know the way to get there? Jesus answered him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father except by me.
Now that you have known me, he said to them, you will know my father also. And from now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Last week we looked at the seven signs in John's Gospel. These were selected because they direct the reader beyond themselves to the nature of the one who employed them, to the true nature of Jesus. And since that, that is because the, the, the Jesus in this Gospel, his role primarily seems to be to reveal the Father, to the, na- the nature of God. This week we're going to take an equally brief look at the I Am sayings Focusing our attention on the seven which are referred to as predicated, that means they involve a metaphor. These are the sayings that seem to have caused so much consternation to the religious leaders who interpreted them as blasphemous. Like last week, this is once again more of a didactic learning exercise than a charismatic expository or exegetical preaching enterprise. I've been practicing my big words all week. So basically, it's more information than proclamation. But hopefully, in looking at this, we'll discover something a little bit new or different about the nature of Jesus, at least as he is viewed by John, and as a result, get a little bit closer to thinking about God. So we're going to start with some background and a little bit of a teeny-weeny Greek lesson. Because key to this is a Greek phrase, which is ego amy. And that's translated as I am. And this is used throughout the fourth gospel in three different ways. Now, you can remember this bit or you can forget it. It's fine. I won't test you on it later. Firstly, it's used simply just as a kind of identification. For example, in the healing of the blind man, when people are not quite sure and they say, well, is it him? Isn't it him? He says, translated into English, I am he. In the Greek, it says, ego amy. And this is a phrase that literally translates as, I am, I am. It's a kind of emphatic assertion. It really is me, is what the blind man is saying. And whilst that's not an unknown usage of this phrase, it's relatively rare. You wouldn't like, be very likely to use it just to say, well, hey, it's me. So that's one way in which it's used. There are a few other ways it's used, and they are small, and they seem to have a clear, unambiguous, absolute divinity claim on the part of Jesus. In other words, he is saying, I am God. And an example of this is in chapter 8, where Jesus and the Jewish authorities are in a heated debate, and Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, ego, amy. And although there are not many of them, these are the claims that would definitely lead to allegations of blasphemy and fuel the desires of the authorities to silence Jesus. He is claiming to be God or one with God. But our focus today is the seven predicative, I I shouldn't use big words, the seven I am sayings spoken by Jesus that perhaps are deliberately ambiguous in their intent. On the one hand, they each have a straightforward, if definitely emphatic, claim about Jesus' identity. 
I'm the good shepherd, for example, which could be heard as I really, really am the good shepherd or I'm absolutely the best possible shepherd you could imagine. But on the other hand, may have an implicit or even overt divinity claim. At least if you were a first century Jewish person steeped in the Hebrew scriptures. Because I am is the name that God revealed to Moses in the encounter at the burning bush. And most of the images that are used in these I am sayings have a correspondence with symbols that would have been familiar to his hearers coming directly out of the Hebrew scriptures. So we have a Jesus who uses phrases that are possibly deliberately provocative and certainly ambiguous. For the author, there is no doubt that Jesus is who he claims or appears to claim to be in using this term. At the time the gospel stories were written down and at the time that Jesus walked the earth, the version of the Hebrew scriptures that people used in the synagogues was in Greek, not in Hebrew. It was a Septuagint translation. And in that translation, the word that we would translate as Yahweh, the I am from Hebrew, is translated into Greek as Ego, Amy. So it's the same choice that is used by the the writer of the fourth gospel. So then, we've got this phrase which ranges from a very emphatic, ordinary identification, I really am who I say I am, to a blatant divinity claim at the other end, I am actually God, and in between these seven sayings, which is intended to give us some new insight into the true nature of Jesus. Just like the signs which many scholar, with which many scholars draw direct parallels, the I am sayings are intended to prompt the reader to wonder what lies behind them. It's back to this hmm thing that we were talking about last week. What is Jesus revealing about himself or about God when he says, I am such and such a thing? Scholars tell us that this gospel is very much influenced by both Greek and Gnostic teaching. And certainly there is evidence in the dualism of the language and metaphors that is employed in the gospel. For example, we have the ideas of above and below, light and dark, a a definite binary kind of worldview, in, out, up, down. The enigmatic language that is used, and a Jesus who seems to speak in riddles, also fit with the idea of a community that has a kind of coded method of communication. And if you stop to think about it, with the persecution that the early church experienced, that's possibly not so unreasonable. You'd have your own secret way of talking about things. Some scholars detect a definite emphasis on things spiritual or eternal rather than material or temporal. And this definitely would reflect the influence of Gnostic thought. Because in Gnostic thought, it was a very low view of the physical, material world. And you were sort of aspirational towards the spiritual realm if nothing else it's a very complicated set of writings and we shouldn't be too troubled if we find them strange and bewildering and looking around I think what I've said has just left everybody bewildered so that's okay they are difficult sayings to get your head around so that's kind of what that background was all about and if you look fuzzled I've succeeded but what are these seven sayings anyway I've just put them up on the screen. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door or the gate for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth and the life. And I am the true vine. And by implication, there could be two others. So I get ahead of myself there. Uh, In chapter 2, the story of the turning water into wine at Cana, there is inference that Jesus is the good wine or the best wine. And in the story of the encounter with the woman at the well in chapter 4, the sense that Jesus is living water. So somewhere between 7 and 9, this has a bit of familiarity, doesn't it, with last week when we had somewhere between 7 and 9 signs. 
If you can remember, if you were here last week, the structure of the gospel, it's possibly worth noting that five of these sayings arise in the book of signs and two of them in the farewell discourses that form part of the book of glorification, suggesting that even as the emphasis of the gospel shifts, even as the hour emerges and shifts from not yet to now, this revelation of who Jesus is continues. I actually wonder if we begin to see hints of continuous revelation, which would really offend any Anglicans who might be sitting around the place. But I think perhaps we do have a sense of ongoing revelation through time. The interweaving of signs and sayings, sometimes with clear connections and sometimes with nothing at all obvious, is all part of a telling of the story from the perspective of a Jesus whose words and deeds are deliberately intended to reveal who he is. So, I've just put on this screen, kind of interwoven them to give an idea of that. So we first, the first sign, the water into wine at Cana, we have the inference of I am the good wine and an inference of I am the living water. Then we get a couple of healings, the healing of the official son and the healing of a paralytic man at Bethsaida. And then comes the feeding of the 5,000, followed by a conversation in which Jesus refers to himself as the bread of life. Then comes the walking on water, and then the sudden change of direction where Jesus refers to himself as the light of the world before he goes on to heal a man born blind. And we have talk about light and dark in that context. Then some sheepy language, the the idea of Jesus as the gate or the door and as the good shepherd. And then it shifts into a different realm. We get the raising of Lazarus and these particularly um, bizarre sayings, I guess. I am the resurrection and the life, and I am the way, the truth and the life. I am the true vine. Then comes the resurrection of Jesus, and then comes the miraculous catch. Now, don't worry if you can't remember all that. It's not going to be tested on, and I'll have forgotten it by tomorrow, even though I've spent a week working on it. Oops, I don't quite know what I've done there. There we go. I won't get ahead of myself again. Whether we understand these uh, reference of these sayings as being physical or spiritual, whether it's temporal or eternal, what they all seem to be doing is have a sense of being concerned with life or being alive. And the often quoted half a verse from John 10 about life in all its fullness or the abundance of life is perhaps a helpful summary of what's revealed here. The salvific intention applies both to the temporal and eternal dimensions, and it has both a physical and a spiritual sense to it. Despite all the dualism present in the gospel, we actually seem to see the two being pulled together in what is said and done. So, for example, if we start off with the provision of wine for the wedding guests and the water drawn from the well for Jesus by a Samaritan woman we see a connection with basic human needs, a theme that carries on in the feeding of the multitude and which precedes the first overt I am saying. Water to drink, food to eat, basic essentials for the health and strength of the human body, vital to the maintenance of life itself. This is where the revelation of Jesus begins and therefore it's the first thing he reveals to us about the nature of God. Then three healing signs, a child restored to health, a lame man walking and a blind man seeing that lead on to sayings that have a hint of protection, of security and safety, light to see by, shelter in the sheepfold and protection offered by a diligent shepherd. And then there is a shift of emphasis, this raising of Lazarus and the sayings that follow that seem to cross the boundary between time and eternity, that destroy the barrier between life and death and lead us on to this weird language, mysterious language about mutual indwelling in the image of the vine. It seems to me, although I could be completely wrong, but it does seem to me that you can trace a progression 
through the gospel from very basic survival needs, food, water, shelter, on to things that hint at community and relationship and to those that move even beyond our earthly experiences. As I was pondering it this week and looking at the order they appear in the gospel, I found myself calling to mind the pyramid structure of Maslow's hierarchy of needs and spotting more than a few similarities along the way. And actually, when I did a bit of Googling, I even found a sermon that had done that. So there you go. Somebody else had the same wacky idea. But Maslow starts off with basic needs for food and water, warmth and rest, moves on to security and safety, and then on again to relationships, to how we feel about ourselves, to accompaniment, accomplishment even, and eventually to self-actualization. Now, I'm certainly not for a moment suggesting that Maslow drew on this gospel, either consciously or unconsciously, nor am I suggesting that hierarchical representation, seeing the more ephemeral self-actualisation as somehow superior, can be applied to gospel. But I was interested to see the same kind of progression in thinking. And whilst I was looking for images to stick on my PowerPoint, which I regularly nick from the web, I came across this one that has, interestingly, a kind of a halo at the top, a halo which says transcendence. So I went and had a look at the website it came from, and guess what? It was in Greek. And even with the help of translation software, I didn't actually see what they'd done with it. They just shoved it in as a picture. But perhaps there is some sense of a trajectory, a journey onwards towards eternity. If eternity is the kind of transcendence, and this is a a road with a bit of perspective on it, moving on from basic needs through security and safety to community, to discovering who we are on our way to the ultimate transcendence of eternal life. Well, judging by your faces... I've left you well confused again. And it might be fascinating and it might leave you cold. That's that's fine. Perhaps more relevant is what these sayings reveal to us about the nature of God and what that might mean for us today. I think firstly what we see is a God who's concerned about the bare essentials for life. If God is somehow or other food and drink, then we are directed to a God who sustains us physically The natural resources of the earth, the crops we grow, the food we produce, is all evidence of a God who nourishes us and a God who longs to nourish all people, all creation. We have a God who offers shelter and security. The shepherd of many sheepfolds is how Jesus described himself. He gathers in the sheep and then he lies across the opening in the wall, acting as a gate to bar the way to predators or thieves. Human community, the infrastructure and welfare and even much charitable work seems to have a reflection of this aspect of the divine. Education, healthcare, rehabilitation, all affirm our humanity and help us to develop healthy self-esteem. A God who wants us to be who we are, created to be, and not just us, but all people. And then a God concerned not just with the temporal, the now, but also the eternal, expressed in what are probably the most complex and challenging of the I am sayings. These are beautiful, hopeful claims. A God who is the way through the mystery of death into life everlasting, and a God who actually is life everlasting. And yet all too often they can be used in a crass, heavy-handed way to exclude those who don't believe what we believe, making Jesus into some kind of harsh gatekeeper, barring the way to God. No one comes to the Father except by me. But dare we play with the words a little bit? Can we turn them round and hear Jesus saying, Actually, through me, everyone can come to the Father. Or even, nobody who sets out to seek the Father 
ultimately won't find me because I'm the way to the Father. Don't have enough Greek to tell you whether those are legitimate things to do with it, but I find it slightly more helpful than a foot stampy, I'm in, you're out method. At the same time, it doesn't give us a kind of lazy universalism. It actually seems to be consistent with other parts of Scripture, pointing us to a God who, in Jesus, offers us not just the only ultimate signpost, but the perfect vehicle for salvation. This idea that those who seek for God will come to Jesus doesn't take away their freedom to say, actually, no, what? No, thanks. I don't want that. But it does show us a God whose concern for well-being extends beyond the here and now into the eternal. And I think it stops us ever feeling that we can say this person's in and that person's out because actually we don't know. The I am sayings of the fourth gospel got Jesus into heap big trouble with the authorities because they heard them as blasphemous claims about his own identity. Perhaps when we're looking at them 2,000 years later, it's as well to be reminded us of the insights they give to us into the nature of God and to think how that might affect our own ongoing discipleship. I think maybe we should return to the sayings in the not-too-distant future and wrestle with them properly. But for now, let's delight in the God who is concerned for the whole of our lives and sing again of the work of God in Christ as we join together in number 370 at the name of Jesus.
And now we bring our prayers for others and for ourselves. Let us pray. Father, hear the prayer we offer, not for ease that prayer shall be, but for strength that we may ever live our lives courageously. O God, our Father, as we bring our petitions to you this morning, we do not do so seeking a life of ease, for we know that life can be difficult and we need your strength to live it with courage. And so we would remember those who at this time are going through trials that will test their faith and shake their trust. We pray especially today for all those who find themselves as refugees and homeless people. We've seen the news reports of migrants bobbing on flimsy rafts across the sea and weary wanderers on open roadways or struggling at railway stations seeking to move onwards to a safe and secure life elsewhere in Europe. In this hugely complex situation, we pray for the leaders of the nations that they might work with the aid agencies and all who would seek to find a solution by political and humanitarian means that this great mass of the world's citizens may find a settled home and a lasting peace. We pray for our own nation and people today. We are aware of threats to employment in many of our industries. We think of those who struggle to make a living within jobs and the many whose aspiration for employment are high but whose opportunities are very limited. We pray for graduates seeking work, for young people leaving school or college hoping for jobs with a future. We pray for those who find it almost impossible to earn sufficient to afford rented accommodation or the mortgage to buy a house. We pray for all those who are locked into difficult situations where they suffer from overcrowding and where relationships are under strain and there's no immediate prospect of a change in their circumstances. And we would bring our prayers to you today for the church, which seeks to bring hope and comfort in so many situations throughout the world where there is disease, homelessness, injustice and despair. Bless the work of Operation Agri, Christian Aid, Tear Fund, Save the Children and all the agencies who labour tirelessly to bring relief in a desperate world. We pray for our own church fellowship here in Hillhead. We give thanks for its long history of witness and service in this place. And we pray that as we look forward to new developments in the building, that this might herald a willingness of each and all of us to commit ourselves to the work that goes on here in your name. Finally, we bring our individual concerns and hopes to you today. Only you can see into our hearts and know us altogether. Therefore, we would ask for forgiveness for our sins and failures, renewal of our resolve to serve you faithfully, strength for whatever tasks may face us, and the presence of the Holy Spirit, that we, that we might indeed live our lives courageously. Amen.
Let's pray together. In the security and the safety of the arms of Jesus, we bring these our gifts to offer for the continuation of his work on earth. And with them we bring ourselves, our own gifts and abilities, our own time, our own commitment. And so we offer them now in his precious name. Amen. Our closing hymn is number 593. Have to have a bit of good Welshness now and then. Come Rhonda, guide me, oh, our great Jehovah. the I am God who sustains and nurtures us, the I am God who redeems and refreshes us, the I am God who inspires and indwells us, be with us and those we love now and always. Amen.